This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited today to be speaking with Frederick Alexander, founding partner and CEO of the Shareholder Commons, a nonprofit organization that advocates for diversified shareholders. Rick practiced law at Wilmington, Delaware, Morris, Nichols, Arsht, and Tunnel, and he was selected by the international who's who of corporate governance lawyers, a research partner of the IBA, as one of the 10 most highly regarded corporate governance lawyers worldwide. So thank you, Rick, for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me, Ron. Okay, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about the public discourse implications to Elon Musk's staggering $44 billion acquisition of Twitter, a deal that was struck extremely quickly, essentially about three weeks from when Musk disclosed his original 9.1% stake. And maybe we'll get into some of the disclosure issues associated with when he reported that position and how he did. But three weeks from when he disclosed the position, the deal was struck. And I've noticed just recently that some reports have emerged noting that Musk plans to be interim CEO once the deal is approved, which I believe raises even more questions about the company's future. And we just put out an article suggesting that lawmakers, particularly Democrats on Capitol Hill, worried about the acquisition's impact on democracy, could try to wrangle some concessions from Musk as it goes through what I expect will be a lengthy regulatory and shareholder approval process. Most of the lawyers I talk to expect that the deal will be approved, but lots of complications, twists and turns along the way, I suspect. And Rick has some very interesting ideas on the subject in terms of things that I guess people could advocate for as this deal goes under review. So, but before we get to that, Rick, maybe you could first tell us a little bit about the shareholder commons, when it was formed and what its goals are. Yeah, sure. As you said, we're a nonprofit organization. I think probably the only one out there that's really specifically designed to advocate for the interests of diversified shareholders. And that sort of all comes out of my practice in Delaware. As you mentioned, I was a corporate transactional lawyer in Delaware for about 25 years. And that meant working on a lot of M&A transactions, a lot of hostile deals, a lot of fundraising. But all of that was done around this idea that the duty of a board of directors and the management is to run the company for the benefit of shareholders. And the way you do that is by making a lot of tricky decisions that ultimately, over the long run, maximize the value of the cash flows that go to shareholders. And that doesn't have to be a short-term thing, but over the long run, that you're focused on maximizing cash flows to shareholders. And I think toward the end of my career as a lawyer, I got interested in this idea that maybe that wasn't the best way to run an economy. I mean, I got very involved in helping to draft and promote something called the PBC, the Public Benefit Corporation. Mm -hmm. And that's a corporation that works just like a regular corporation, except that its goal is to balance the interests of shareholders with the interests of other stakeholders. And through that work, I went to work for a nonprofit called B-Lab, which uses that PBC form in order to help companies measure and manage their impact. And they have a whole system for doing that. As much as I liked working at B-Lab and, and I believe in the work they did, what I found was that as companies scaled who were using this system, that it became harder for them to actually balance shareholders with other stakeholders. Because as you grow and go public or take in venture capital money or private equity money, you're dealing with investors who expect you to maximize your value as a company, even especially when that clashes with the interests of other stakeholders, the shareholders' financial interests usually went out. And so 
Having learned that about three years ago, I left B-Lab and formed the Shareholder Commons. And our idea is to work with diversified shareholders, institutions like pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and foundations and endowments. They're very diversified and help them to understand that it's not actually in their interests to require each company in their portfolio to maximize their own value. Okay. So since you brought up the public benefit corp, maybe we could start because that was one of your suggestions for Twitter as it reviews this deal with Elon Musk. And I'm fascinated by this focus on stakeholders because I've seen a number of reports about different academics, different people raising concern about how as this deal goes through its review, a number of different stakeholders are not really being considered, you know, employees, supply chains, and just the public, I guess, in terms of discourse and you know, there's a lot of concerns that we could see an increase in misinformation on Twitter if Elon Musk's free speech approach takes hold. Well, just to, to answer the specific question, you don't have to be a publicly traded company. In fact, I mean, there are thousands of PVCs, about 2,200, and then other states have other forms of the benefit corporation, and there's probably more than 10,000 in the United States. And only about, I think, I think last count, 19 are publicly traded. So it applies to everybody. But just to back up a little bit and explain why that's important in the case of Twitter, what I would point to is, and this is, you know, you're referring to this discussion, you might expect regulators or legislators to say, wow, Twitter, like other social media companies, has a very important communications platform. And the way that platform functions affects society and that affects the the value of the economy we live in and the quality of life we all have. I don't think, and people might have different views on this, but I don't think at the end of the day, regulators or legislators are going to stop this deal from happening. They may ask a lot of questions and I think it will move forward. And the proposition, the value proposition that we have for shareholders is to say, okay, let's say you're a pension fund and you're invested in 5,000 equity securities around the world, and this deal is in front of you. And you know that the directors did a pretty good job, thorough job, you think, checking the market and that they decided this was the best price that shareholders were going to get, whether the company remained private or not. 54.20 was the way to go. Even if that's the case, even if it's the best thing from the perspective of Twitter's financial performance to deliver that $54.20, it might not be in your interest as a diversified shareholder for the transaction to close the way it's going to close because of the implications that the ownership transfer will have on the public square. Because if the value of the public square isn't preserved, there can be damage to social systems, environmental systems, and ultimately the economy. And if GDP, say, falls 2% because we have very disruptive social media, on average, a diversified portfolio is going to fall 2%. And so our value proposition is that shareholders themselves have an interest different than the interest of an individual company in making sure that the company is doing right by stakeholders, if you will. And so that's why we've suggested that one thing shareholders might ask is that the company become a PBC, a public benefit corporation, where its directors have duties to a bigger group of stakeholders so that they can preserve the public square, even if that doesn't maximize cash flows to the shareholders of Twitter. 
And so what other stakeholders are you envisioning or what, what other stakeholders are usually considered within public benefit corporations? Well, under PBC law, it's very broad. It's everyone you impact, but also under PBC law, you pick out a particular interest that you would represent. And I would expect to see the company choose a public benefit of maintaining healthy discourse for the users of the Twitter platform. Okay. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it sounds very intriguing. And yeah, I agree with your theory that it's unlikely that legislative threats on Capitol Hill could pressure him to do changes. But it's interesting your point that, you know, shareholders could encourage him to make some sort of concession, it sounds like. Yeah, um, yeah go ahead. Yeah, I want to get but I want to say that, and this is something I always tell people, is that PBC alone mm-hmm. doesn't make a company better because you could be a PBC and still do bad things because the only group that can enforce the obligation of the directors to consider the interests of stakeholders is the shareholders themselves. So even though the fiduciary duty is broader in a PBC, it still only runs to shareholders. And if the shareholders are just a few people or entities that want to maximize value, it doesn't really mean anything. So you need additional protections. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at our open letter to Elon Musk, we suggest that the company become a benefit corporation, but also that they put in place some parameters that would ensure that Twitter's transparent about its operations and that it protects its public square aspects, whether that's like making sure that speech is adequately free or whether you're making sure that the speech that's taking place isn't the equivalent to shouting fire in a crowded theater. And so you'd want some- I I assume this is equivalent to shutting fire in a crowded theater when there is no actual fire there, (laughs) which is the misinformation that is often rampant on social media and these moderators try to cut back on. (laughs) So what, what are you suggesting how they could improve transparency about its operations, particularly as a private company? It's just an interesting fact that the way we've constructed our economy is to say, if you're a publicly traded company, you have to be very transparent. The theory is that protects shareholders, but there's really a lot of spillover where that transparency is also useful to many other stakeholders. Because if I'm interested in a company's, say, climate footprint, but I'm not a shareholder, I can look at their public filings and learn a lot if they're filing like a CSR report or if they're talking about it in their 10K. Whereas if I go to look at a private company, it's much less likely that they're filing anything like that. And so one thing would be to just require that they maintain the transparency they now have. As you know, there's a bunch of standards out there for what people call ESG or sustainability. They could look at GRI. That's a very, I think, high-level standard that's drafted to consider the interests of stakeholders. So at the shareholder commons, we try to be a little bit neutral or agnostic about what the particular protections would be. And what we're more focused on is making or helping shareholders understand that there is a value proposition for them in figuring things out like what kind of transparency should we ask for? What sort of parameters, what sort of procedures would we want to see in place before the company goes private? Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting because we know that Elon Musk has been a Twitter troll taking shots at rival billionaires, short sellers, and also, I guess, billionaire short sellers. I'm thinking of uh, Bill Gates recently. <laughs> the media, he advocated for free speech on the platform. And I know that some critics are worried that this 
could lead to more hate speech and misinformation on the platform. Senator Elizabeth Warren, for example, tweeted not too long ago that Musk's acquisition would be, quote, dangerous for democracy, which I think suggests that we may see hearings on Capitol Hill and potentially even Elon Musk being called to testify, where I envision him coming in an electric car and complaining about no parking where he needs to uh, pull over for his, his testimony. But anyways, so I think that there's a place where lawmakers can bring up some of these points you're making. And you had another interesting point about a trust, maybe an independent trust idea. Yeah, so, that's a good. Yeah, so explain that. That's a, yeah, no, it's a good segue. Because I, I do want to say that, like, I don't think of this issue as a anti-Elon Musk or, or Elon has this all wrong. And if, for two reasons, you know, one, one is simply that the fact that Elon Musk is going to be a controlling shareholder when the deal closes under the current structure doesn't ensure that Elon Musk is going to control the company for all time. No. You know, there's going to be creditors, <laughs> his creditors, the company's creditors, there's going to be other equity holders. As you said, there might be a IPO at some point. Uh, it, something could happen to Elon. I mean, you know, God forbid. So the point is that there's this entity out there that has like very important influence. And I think interestingly, Elon Musk and Elizabeth Warren are actually in agreement on that point, that this is a critical platform. And so I think the concept is to say, for democratic reasons, it's pretty important that you don't have that critical platform controlled by one person or by economic pressures or whatever it is, that the first line of defense is some sort of independent mechanism that recognizes that more important than economic pressure or the influence of someone because they're the owner, there are some basic principles. And so people ought to align around those principles. And then you could form an independent trust, very popular in Europe to have something called like a purpose trust or a purpose foundation. Sometimes family-owned companies will put like what they call golden shares into a trust that make sure that entity can't be sold or changed in a major way without an independent body approving it. And my thinking, and again, I, this isn't my call to make, it's the shareholders working together with the buyer's call to make, could put in a mechanism like that, that set up a trust, gave them some shares so that they could enforce the public benefit provisions of the charter and so that they could enforce the transparency. By they, you mean the trust that there's like a, a board of trustees uh, yeah, and there's working there? Different different ways that you could structure that. You might have a, a board of trustees that was just sort of a, you set it up independently and then it was self-perpetuating so that they would keep putting in new independent people to replace themselves. That's how a lot of nonprofits work. There's an interesting line of thought. It's called platform democracy. It's a whole way of doing decision-making. There's a guy named Aviv Avadaya, who, I don't know if you remember his name, he was the guy who publicly called what was going on in the 2016 election early. He had a little bit of fame for that. He's now at the Kennedy School working on a bunch of different tech democracy ideas. And he's promoting this idea called platform democracy, which is complicated, more complicated than the self-perpetuating board, but also arguably more democratic. So I think there's like a variety of ways to do that. And again, I don't want to be the advocate for any one way. What we're really trying to do with this open letter is communicate the idea that there's an important value proposition for shareholders and you know, maybe also for the buying syndicate because of the problems they're running into 
public hearings and things like that, there's a value proposition in figuring out some sort of independent mechanism to guard the viability of the public square. It's definitely, they're all very interesting ideas. I have to say, though, I'm skeptical. I could see uh, Elon Musk maybe supporting more transparency about the operations. He's even talked about disclosing uh, the algorithm, I guess, behind uh, a lot of the way that they moderate the social media platform. But if there's an independent trust where there's a golden share, goes to some trustees, seems like he would lose some of his control of the business. He seems to be kind of a, I wouldn't say control freak, but wants to be in charge. Hence his decision to do this acquisition. But I could see also your point that he has lots of different creditors. There's some new ones that emerged even in the last 24 hours that I guess are allowing him to reduce his equity investment into it, that he would have to be you know, in communication with and they definitely have to be on board with his plan. So, uh, so I mean, but, look, just to be clear about it, there's some things like I, I know that there's controversy around some of his ideas of free speech and, and what he thinks that mean. And I probably agree with some of those criticisms. But I think there's some things that he's talking about doing that people think are pretty good around transparency of the algorithm, around dealing with the bots. Yeah, he wants to and, eradicate the bots. Maybe and, and you know, I don't know. <laughs> this mechanism could protect those things. And again, he's going to have creditors. He's going to have financial pressures. He's going to have Tesla to run and a lot of, of things to do. And these mechanisms, again, they're neutral as to red, blue, however you want to think about those opposing ideas, they are just ways of saying there are values we want to preserve before preserving the economics of this entity. And we're not going to be able to do that unless we sort of tie our hands ahead of time. And these are mechanisms to do that. And it sounds like these ideas are points you hope are enduring, right? That will continue uh, regardless of whether Elon Musk owns Twitter or not, or if it goes public or not. When it returns to the public markets, hypothetically, you would have the public benefit court, which sounds like you would have even more shareholders. All these things you're hoping will withstand for decades to come, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyways, this is fascinating stuff. I really appreciate you, Rick, taking the time to talk to us about it. I suspect we may see some of these emerge in some points that different lawmakers will make or some shareholders might bring up as there's you know, definitely a long winding road, I suspect, before this gets approved. And so that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast, and we've been speaking to Rick Alexander. Thanks, Rick, for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. If people are interested, they can check out our website, theshareholdercommons.com. And if you're interested in being part of this, feel free to reach out to me at rick at theshareholdercommons.com. Okay, super. Thanks a lot, Rick. Really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Ron. Bye.